It's Thursday, December 17th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The U.S. has been hacked again. Russian government hackers are believed to be responsible for infiltrating the computer systems of multiple agencies, including the Pentagon, Homeland Security, Treasury Department, and even the National Institutes of Health. The hacking group Cozy Bear are said to be the perpetrators, and they exploited a vulnerability in computer monitoring software from a company called SolarWinds. Ellen Nakashima, national security reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for how despite the U.S. spending billions on cybersecurity, the Russians were still able to get in. Next, the novel coronavirus has been with us for about a year now. We have vaccines rolling out and know a lot about the virus that has wreaked havoc on the world, but we also still have many questions. It is a virus of contrast. It's dangerous enough to send some to the hospital and kill over 1.6 million people worldwide, but mild enough for many to recover quickly or be asymptomatic. Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News, joins us for what we know about coronavirus one year in. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. What they've done, we don't know the full scope. Uh, we don't know if this is one uh, incidence or that this has been going on for years and years and years. So always remember that there's so much more going on in this world that's classified that we don't know about. By the way, we are doing a lot of activity in this world as well. Joining us now is Ellen Nakashima, national security reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Ellen. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about this recent hack of the government that we just found out about. It's believed that Russian government hackers are responsible for getting into the computer systems at multiple U.S. agencies. This is kind of like a months-long effort that's been going on. They got into the Pentagon, Department of Homeland Security, Department of the Treasury, a couple of other places as well. And this is a pretty big operation from what we understand. So, Ellen, help us walk through some of what we know about this breach. The government breach first came to light over the weekend when Reuters broke the story that the Treasury Department and the Commerce Department had been hacked. I broke the story that was part of a wider breach by the Russian intelligence service that included a top cybersecurity firm called FireEye. In fact, it was FireEye that last week, first it had been hacked, and there was reporting then that they had been hacked by the Russians. And then sort of on the weekend, I broke a story that it was all part of the same campaign. And then what we've found out in the subsequent days is that this is just getting bigger and bigger, extended beyond Treasury and Commerce to the State Department, to parts of the Pentagon, to the Department of Homeland Security, and to the National Institutes of Health. It's likely that other federal agencies will come to light. And it's not just the federal government. Okay, it's much broader than that. A lot of people might have uh, heard the name of the Russian hackers. They go by the name Cozy Bear or APT29. They've been uh, involved in a lot of other hacks before. There's like two hacking arms, I guess, for the Russians. There's the military hacking arm, which is the GRU. And then there's this, the Foreign Intelligence Service, the SVR. Uh, Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about Cozy Bear and and maybe some of the other things that they've gotten into. Sure. And just to level set, they're really three security agencies. So there's, you're right, the military intelligence service, the GRU, there's the foreign intelligence service, which is sort of like the equivalent of CIA, and that's the SDR. And then there's the FSB, the internal security service, which is more akin to the FBI. And all three 
have their own hacking teams, some of which are quite good. And all three have numerous hacking teams, not just one. One of SVR's hacking teams is a group that goes by the nickname of Cozy Bear. That's what cybersecurity researchers here call it, or APT29. It's possible, maybe even likely, that APT29 is the SVR unit behind this. We don't know for sure yet, but it's pretty clear that the SVR is involved in this hacking campaign. And this, whatever group it is of the SVR, is pretty darn good at what it's doing. Yeah. Tell us how they were able to get this hack going. My understanding is that they exploited that SolarWinds company and they used uh, software updates that they were rolling out to their clients. And that's how they got into a lot of these systems. Exactly. And so that's called a supply chain attack because it wasn't a full frontal attack right on the target government agency or a company, but rather on the software that the agency is using, in this case, to manage their network. And because everyone who uses software needs software patches and updates to keep it running properly, you're told constantly to keep your systems patched. Of course, the agencies were patching. And unbeknownst to them, when they installed the patch, they were installing malware that enabled the Russian hackers to get inside their networks, get a foothold, sort of like through a back door, and get inside. Now, that didn't mean that the hackers were going to steal anything just because they got in, because in fact, they've compromised many, many, many victims. We don't even know exactly how many, but certainly countless victims right now. They didn't go in and steal data from all the victims that they were able to get into. Yep. Able to compromise. It sort of depended on whether or not that victim's data was of interest to the Russians. Do we know if there was anything specific stolen from any of these government agencies? So we know emails were taken. I mean, emails are often a juicy target for nation-state hackers because yeah. they can tell you so much, right, about what the policymakers or the diplomats are thinking. And certainly at the State Department, they were interested in in what the folks at state were thinking about Russia, Russian strategic interests around the world, at Treasury, you know, it might be that they were interested in what sorts of sanctions might be coming down the road on Russia. At the Pentagon, it's unclear yet the extent to which they've penetrated the network there because it's so huge. You know, at NIH, well, we don't know exactly what was taken or of interest, but Certainly, we know that this group, the SDR, has been attempting to steal coronavirus vaccine-related information right. and research. Yeah, and that's obviously so important right now. The U.S. government has spent billions of dollars on a system for detecting hacks like this. And you wrote a subsequent article you know, in your coverage of all this basically saying that the Russians just outsmarted it. They're just that good right now. So part of it was their skill as hackers, and a part of it was also a government blind spot in that this system wasn't set up to detect certain new types of hacks. The government and Department of Homeland Security in particular has spent billions of dollars over the years to come up with an intrusion detection and prevention system called Einstein that's been in place for, for a while. And Einstein is supposed to detect malicious intrusions 
at the point of entry into an agency network, in particular on the civilian side of the government, so not the Department of Defense and not the classified networks. The problem is it works off known indicators or signatures, they're often called. And if the attacker is using a new type of technique that hasn't been seen before or recognized before, then Einstein can't look for it, can't recognize it. And so that that's one of the main failings of this Einstein right. system. Yeah, I mean, you always have to kind of feed it these new things. It's like AI, right? You, you always have to feed it the new the newest thing so that they can keep up on it. I mean, that's so tough. And, and right. lawmakers, obviously, they get very angry when things like this happen. But some of the good points that they make is we've been going back and forth on cybersecurity efforts like this for so long, especially when we see things coming from Russians and the Chinese government as well. And, you know, why haven't we gotten better at this, I guess, let's say. And beyond that, you know, what kind of consequences come from this? Like, do we respond in kind? You know, how, how does the government respond when something like this happens? Part of that long-running debate is, is that what Russia appears to be doing, at least for now, is what's known as classic espionage, right? They're spying on, on the U.S. government and on private companies for information and intelligence, which, especially when it comes to government networks, is what the U.S. government does to Russia and to other adversaries, as well as to some friendly countries. All pretty much advanced uh, countries spy on each other. It's just part of how they try to, you know, keep themselves safe and, in fact, actually ensure a degree of stability in the world. And so, on the one hand, there's no international norm against spying. On the other, if it is done to such a degree that it seems out of proportion, and and if the attacker gets caught, well, you know, in a way bad on them is the thinking. And so then the policy question is, what should be done about it, right? First of all, there's an increasing uh, chorus here of lawmakers who think that the foreign country that does this should be called out, should be made to, uh, you know, to help, help to account for it somehow. Right. And I think one of the main ways of doing it that we found is to apply sanctions, but those really work best when they are applied by more than just the United States, but by other countries as well, sort of together in concert to apply collective pressure right, on, on, the, uh, on the adversary. Yeah. Otherwise, if it's just one country, it has less impact. And, and Russia on their part said, you know, well, we didn't do this. So, I mean, you know, they're obviously going to deny oh, it. Yeah. It makes everybody think, hey, well, you, you probably did it even more now since you're denying it so much. But, right. I, I mean, yeah, that's just the back and forth that goes. As I mentioned, you know, they were in our systems for a long time. Some of these uh, software releases that were coming out of SolarWinds came out in March and June. So it's as, it, as early as then they could have possibly been, uh, you know, uh, looking at all the information. So I, I, I'm sure we're going to be hearing a lot more of this still uh, in the days and weeks to come, just as kind of we get more uh, information on this. So we'll keep an eye out for all of that. Ellen Nakashima, National Security Reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We typically think of this as a respiratory infection, which it is, but there's also 
evidence that it can damage people's hearts. They uh, get into their GI tract and can even, you know, there's neurological and psychiatric effects as well in some people. So it, it's not just one thing. And I think that's been one of the challenges about trying to sort of help people understand what's going on. Joining us now is Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks so much. We are just about hitting the one year mark with coronavirus. And obviously, this is the thing that has upended the world this past year from tons of people getting sick, obviously, to lockdowns, the economy being thrown into the ringer through all of this. So wanted to talk about kind of what we know one year in now with coronavirus. And I like the way you started off your article talking about how there's so many contrasts with this virus specifically. It sends a lot of people to hospitals. It's killed more than 1.6 million people. But for the most part, it's a mild illness where a lot of people just shrug it off. When it comes to your own body's response to this, you know, it blocks part of the immune system from responding to it. But on the other side of it, it sends the immune system into overdrive, which is really what damages a lot of people and gives them the most severe cases of this. So it's really just a bunch of contrast with this virus. So, Andrew, tell us a little bit more what we know now one year in. I think that's sort of the things you highlighted have made sort of crafting a response, a coordinated response, a comprehensive response, all the more difficult just because it kind of does all these different things. Experts have talked about how it's hard to communicate to the public about a virus that, you know, one in five people who get it will show no symptoms at all, whereas like the same portion of people will get severely sick and need to be hospitalized and a portion of them will die. It does show this huge array of both severity of disease and also what that disease look like. We typically think of this as a respiratory infection, which it is, but there's also evidence that it can damage people's hearts. They uh, get into their GI tract and can even, you know, there's neurological and psychiatric effects as well in some people. So it, it's not just one thing. And I think that's been one of the challenges about trying to sort of help people understand what's going on. Yeah, that's one of the important distinctions there, that it's not just a respiratory disease because it does get all over the body in some cases. And as we mentioned, there's a lot of inflammation in the body that happens as a result of what's going on. And this is what makes people that have these underlying health conditions, these comorbidities, this is what makes them more susceptible to that. So that's one of the big major things about it. People probably know by now that like age is a big risk factor. The older you are, the more likely you are to get severe illness. And as you mentioned, underlying health conditions. And, and basically what that does is it means your immune system can't sort of mount as quick of a response. And sort of almost like paradoxically, that makes it more likely that your immune system is going to get into this dangerous overdrive because it has these initial faults. Sort of what it tries to do is that it overcompensates for those initial faults. So that's kind of when people can yeah, get severely sick. One of the other things that you mentioned just a little bit ago, too, was this whole notion about the infectious period and being asymptomatic. That's one of the things that this virus has had kind of in its back pocket, really, that's helped it spread so much. And that also makes it a lot more difficult to make rules and how people can operate. Obviously, we know that you're in enclosed spaces with poor ventilation. This is where the transmission is going to happen. But this whole point of being asymptomatic and still being able to spread it has been a real problem for everybody. People probably remember other coronaviruses have 
kind of crossed over from animals into people in the past couple of decades, the original SARS virus and something called MERS. And those are more serious diseases. They cause more serious diseases than this virus, but but people are only infectious once they start showing symptoms. And so it's just much easier to control a virus when you kind of have that obvious sign of who might have it. With this virus, which is sort of scientifically known as SARS-CoV-2, and it causes a disease called COVID-19, yeah, people can spread it either if they never show symptoms or if they do show symptoms, like in the days before symptoms appear. And so that's just like a huge advantage to the virus, which is trying to go around and find new cells to infect because people can just kind of just be going about their lives, not feel sick at all, not feel like they need to stay in bed and be spreading the virus. And that's sort of one of the reasons why there's been such a urgency for people, even people who think they're okay to wear masks, because there's a lot of people spreading the virus out there who don't realize they have it. And so that's why it's recommended that everyone wear masks sort of in public or when they're around people who aren't part of their households. What do we know about how this virus has changed over time? Because all viruses mutate from person to person and all that. We've heard a couple of recent headlines about a new strain showing up in the UK, but we've heard that before, just strains coming out of China and and Europe. So what do we know about how this has changed over time? So viruses change, as you said. Coronaviruses don't change as quickly as something like flu, for example, but they do change. Yeah, there have been various reports about different variants emerging, and a lot of that is just like a little unclear about what a lot of that means, just because it's still so new and because you can't really tell what the impact of each variant might be. There is one variant that was caused by mutation pretty early on in the virus, and it's pretty widely accepted now that it has helped the virus spread a little bit more efficiently than the original virus that emerged. It was just a single mutation that did that, and that happened in China back in the spring. And that virus kind of became the dominant strain around the world, went from China to Europe to the United States. And so it's not that this variant is uncontrollable or that the other one wasn't spreading well. It's just gave it a little bit of a boost. And I guess importantly to say, it doesn't seem to have had an impact on how sick it makes people. And so I guess the thing about mutations is, yeah, sure, it could change how infectious the the virus becomes. It could change how dangerous the virus becomes. But the main thing people are watching for with mutations is to make sure the virus doesn't change so much that the vaccines that are coming to the public now lose their effectiveness. And so that's a theoretically a possibility and scientists are watching out for that, but they don't think it's like going to be something like flu where they need to recraft their vaccines every year. It doesn't change quite as rapidly as that. This is a novel coronavirus. We've been learning about this thing almost in real time as we've been going through the pandemic. What are some of the big questions that are still left? I know we're still wondering how long immunity might last for somebody or how long the antibodies stick around for people that have had it. But what are some of the big questions we have left about this virus? You know, there's a lot of like sort of wonky scientific things. You know, scientists are trying to figure out about structure and about exactly what happens when the virus infects people. I guess the two main questions that I think about is that it's sort of getting a better understanding of who is at risk for more severe COVID. You know, we know these risk factors, but still, even if you have risk factors, you're most likely going to be okay. So it's trying to sort of get into a little bit more nitty gritty detail about who is really at most at risk and why. When that's probably a multifaceted explanation, which is why they, people haven't figured that out yet. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, the protection, how long the protection lasts. And, you know, it's not going to be one answer. People will have different responses. And that's both to getting infected by the virus itself or to the vaccines. So there's not going to be a clear answer, but I think scientists will want to know generally how long immune protection lasts, whether from the infection or from the vaccines. And that just, you know, that just takes time. They need to study people, you know, and their immune responses over time to know that answer. Right. I mean, it's been quite the roller coaster with this virus shutting down the world 
at one point. You know, we've learned a lot. There's still more questions. I mean, it's going to be one of these things we're going to look at for many, many years to come. Andrew Joseph, reporter at Stat News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.